I'm going to use a lot of cartoons tonight, uh, which may be a good or a bad thing. Um, my apologies to those who are watching uh, the video later, because uh, you're not going to see them, uh, but you will have them described. Uh, I want to think, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the way words mean different things to different people. And I, I, I really enjoy it when um, one word means something to somebody else, and it means something else. So I've got lots of cartoons. This is the first one, uh, which is for those of you who've been in church uh, for a long time. We will now stand and sing the next song on the overhead projector. Now, we know what the person leading worship meant, but what they have done is true. So we're going to think for a few moments about what words mean and how they mean different things to different people. So if I uh, throw out the word peculiar to you, I guess most of us would think that the word peculiar means strange. One of the things that we deal with in Christianity is we go right back to the first English translations of the Bible, uh, the King James Bible, and then the way the Bible has been used since then. And words have changed over the last 100, 200, 300 years. And there is another meaning for the word peculiar, which means to be, it means particular. It means uniquely special. And so in the older versions of the Bible, the word is used about meaning uniquely special, which is fine unless you have named your church the Peculiar People's Church for All Nations. Because what they meant when they called it that, rising out of the way the Bible was translated a few hundred years ago, it no longer means that. And there are lots and lots of examples where if we've been in church a long time, we're beginning to understand that we sometimes use a word slightly differently to the way our culture currently uses it. So another one uh, would be the word grace. And we are familiar, I think, with the different ways in which that is understood. It is a lady's name. We've got a number of graces with us in our church. It is also a prayer used before people eat. But we also understand it to mean God's undeserved and overwhelming love for us. And that causes difficulty if your name is Grace. I love this cartoon. Uh, he says, Grace, sit down. You're not the God's grace the pastor is talking about. Amazing grace. Another word that we use all the time, and I use an awful lot because I've come in the last few years to realize the centrality of this concept. That if, every, if, if there was nothing else, this word is perhaps the most important word. It is the word love. But the problem is that we know that it means different things. And very often, uh, when I talk about loving our neighbor, people hearing me say that have the wrong understanding of the word love. Because for many of us, the word love means to like. And then for some of us, we mean to like a lot. Or, uh, you know, family, partner, children, we love them. We mean we like them a lot. 
And sometimes the Bible uses that word. The problem is actually that in the original Bible, there are different words that we all translate the same word as love. Very often when I'm talking about the love that God commands us, it is not to feel attracted to, but it is to act in the best interests of someone. It's a command, the most important thing that you and I can do with our lives is to love our neighbor. That isn't that we like them. Jesus tells us to love our enemy. By definition, our enemies are the people we don't like. But it is to act in their best interests. That is the command of Jesus. Uh, Another cartoon for you, just about misunderstanding. Uh, She says, could I try on the dress in the window? She says, I'd rather, madam, you tried on in the changing room. <laughs> Words mean, you've all had it, where you've sent a text, you've sent an email, you've had a row, and somebody says, you said this, and you say, well, yes, I did say that, but that's not what I meant. So what is the meaning? The meaning of words is what we intended them to mean, not how somebody else receives them. And our culture means that all of us have different experiences of words. And so words mean different things to all of us. Here's another one from the Bible. It's the word hope. Um, For many people in our culture, the word hope means you want something good to happen, but you think it's uncertain whether it will. I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. I hope the sun's going to come out. It's not certain. In fact, it's more uncertain than certain. We hope for the things that we think there's quite a strong chance that they won't happen. I hope the mighty Cambridge United will avoid relegation this year. It's unlikely, but we hope for it. Whereas actually when the Bible uses the word hope, and when we sing of hope, and when we talk about hope, we don't mean things that are good but uncertain, we mean we are waiting for something good that we believe will happen. And one of the difficulties in reading the Bible is trying to get back to what the writers meant. And there are lots of things that have gone on. Firstly, Jesus probably uh, spoke a language, well, definitely spoke a language that's completely different to our language. But then the language that it was written down in the New Testament was a different language again. So words that Jesus was said, the gospel writers wrote them down in another language, in ancient Greek. Jesus didn't speak ancient Greek. And then the word ancient tells us the next problem. These are words that go back hundreds of years. So if you've done Chaucer or Shakespeare, you will know how it's hard to understand. And then the ancient Greek was translated into English, starting off, as I said, uh, with the King James Bible, or around about that time. There's a number of Bibles at that time. So there's at least three different translations going on. And we're always trying to get back to what... The writer meant, I love this particular one. Jesus says, I appreciate the effort, but the whole sitting on my right hand thing is not as literal as you seem to think. There are times where Christians are confused about what is a metaphor and what is literal. Charlie Brown says, hey Paddy, 
He says, uh, he's sitting on a swing, for those of you who can't see the slide. He says, how about giving me a push? Now, she gives him a push because that's what he asked for. But it's not what he meant. And she says, that was a strange thing to ask for. Why are we doing all of this? We're doing, running through the book of Nehemiah. I've been preaching through that book consistently when it's my turn to preach. And uh, the book of Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. And the last time I got halfway through the sermon and I stopped and I said, we're going to do the next part the next time. And it's about the description of a person that Nehemiah chooses. He says he was trustworthy and feared God more than most people do. And I want to explore what that means because it's a really, really, in my view, misunderstood concept because we in the Bible are meaning something different to how most of you hear those words. And we're going to try and unpack that. We're going to do some more cartoons. So we're going to talk about the fear of God. So if you've been following on there, all of these, we've got a YouTube channel. You can find them on there. You can, wherever you get your podcast, you can listen to them. If you have trouble sleeping at night, I will happily put you to sleep uh, by talking to you about Nehemiah. You can put them on in your headphones. They've been building a wall. It's got finished. But even though the wall is finished, there are still people who are opposing Nehemiah and the people he is leading. And so he has to uh, appoint different people in leadership and as guards. And uh, we read before that he puts in charge his brother and another guy who, uh, who is the commander. And he puts them in joint leadership of the work. And Hanai is described as being trustworthy. In our last sermon, we looked at what being a trustworthy person might look like. And then it says, and he, was, and he feared God more than most people do. So what does it mean uh, to fear God? Just another one of my, I just love these cartoons. And somebody said to me this morning uh, that I bet you love Airplane. I do love Airplane, uh, although it's not a a film I can recommend to you because it's very rude in a lot of places. But uh, please don't call me Shirley, uh, for those of you who've watched it. The gymnastics teacher says, when we say parents are invited, we usually mean to sit and watch. What does it mean to fear God? What does our culture mean? What does the Bible mean? What does it mean for you and I? See, one of the, the, the problem is this, that when we talk about the fear of a person, what we mean is, and, and there are many of us in this room who experience this, maybe tragically in relationships, maybe at work, Maybe just an encounter on the street or at night or on, a, on, a, on public transport. Or maybe in the school playground. When we fear someone, what we are fearing is people who are unpredictable. At any given moment, they are going to react in a way that is dangerous to us. We fear them because their behavior is disproportionate. They overreact to stuff. They fly off the temple. They are angry. They are unpredictable or or, or they are aggressive. They are people who are not merciful. Maybe a combination of those three things. It may be one of those three things. But lots of us experience being afraid of someone. It's a negative thing. The danger is 
that we use that phrase, the fear of God. And the Bible talks about it being the fear of God being the beginning of all wisdom. And you go, well, I just don't understand what that could mean. The problem is that for in our, in our guts, this is what we're feeling, that God is unpredictable, that God is going to come in huge punishment and anger. So what do we mean by the fear of God? If some of you use a version of the Bible called the Amplify version, which is a version that gives all the different nuances of a word, or if you use uh, a, 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 commentary, a, a concordance or a lexicon or something that gives you the meaning of the words, you will discover that very often in the Old Testament when it talks about fear, it's more an idea of reverence, of awe. It's an idea of respect and of honor. And I'm going to try and unpack that over the next few minutes and explain more what that means. Because again, reverence is an easy word for us to understand. We completely mess things up as Christians by inviting uh, you to call uh, clergymen like me reverent completely spoils the concept because I am not very reverent at all. And uh, it's just a bad idea to call people reverent. What is reverence for God? It is not a fear of the character or nature of God. It's not to be afraid of him. It's not to be afraid of what he's like. To fear and be scared and cower as we are afraid of people. It is, in part, a fear of mistreating God, of not giving him the respect, the honor, because he is awesome. We've done that in our worship. Because he's the creator of the underwater fish that Sheila sees. Because he's the creator of the star. Somebody else told me uh, this morning that they feel awe when they've been in the, um, way out in the country and they've looked up at the star at night and that brings awe. And we don't want to mistreat that. We want to honor, we want to value, we want to respect. We recognize that God is infinitely greater than us and so we bow in humility before him. That's what respect is. That's what honor is. He is worthy of worship. And that's all part of this idea. Some translations of the Bible are beginning to use the word revere more than the word fear now. Another one of these, uh, we know what they meant, but it's not what it says. Don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. We know what they meant, but it's not what came out. But the problem is that there are streams of Christianity who are oblivious to what this concept of fear is communicating. And sometimes, actually, I think they quite enjoy giving this wrong impression of God's nature. Richard Ruhr says this, perhaps my single, 
Very interesting. My single greatest disappointment, perhaps, he says, in most of the world's religions is that they succeed against all odds in making most people afraid of God. Do you realize how absurd and horrible that is? Anyone who has an authentic inner experience knows that God is only beauty, mercy, and total embrace, and nothing but beauty and mercy and total embrace. But then some of us who have been steeped in Christianity were going, whoa, that seems a bit strong. Are you sure? Surely we've got to fear God a bit. Are you really sure? And again, what we're going to do is always, when we're not quite sure what the Old Testament means, we go to the way the New Testament corrects the wrong understanding of it. And in this particular word, fear, we are incredibly fortunate in that the disciple John is very aware that religion has got the wrong idea of fear. And in one of the passages I quote so often, in 1 John, John's first letter, he says this, we know and rely. We've talked about this in church meetings. We rely on God's love. We put our trust in his love. We are dependent and confident in his love. We rely on the love God has for us. God is love. You do not fear love. John spells it out. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how we love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Now, there is so much, we talked about at the beginning of the the service, so much that is wrong in this world. And we long for the day when Jesus will return and he will say, enough, no more injustice, no more wars, no more revenge, bombings and attacks. No more false imprisonment of people and mysteriously dying. There is a time when Jesus will judge the world. And his justice is to say that that which you have thought and used that was wrong is wrong. But John is saying that if you are in the love of God, there's no fear at all of that moment. No fear if we're in the love of God, of the day when God judges the world. He goes even more stark. He says, in this world, we are like Jesus. Like Jesus? He doesn't mean that we behave like Jesus because we are full of sin and stuff and stuff that's wrong in our lives. It's not about our behavior. What he's talking about is our relationship, our status before God. He is saying that we are in the same place of acceptance and intimacy by the Father as the Son. And therefore we have confidence to meet God. When we die, John's saying, have confidence. Because when we come to God and say, Lord, have mercy, you know I'm a sinner. When we put our rubbish, our sin on Jesus, when he takes that on the cross, we become like him. It's as if we didn't sin. We are free. 
And here's the bit. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Is he contradicting Nehemiah who says, I chose Hanai because he feared the Lord? He's not contradicting him. He's just explaining that really that word fear isn't the best word for our translation. We need to understand what was meant. They meant in the Old Testament, revere. And John is saying, when you are in the love of God, there is peace. There is no condemnation. There is a freedom. And therefore, we love because he first loved us. We don't fear God when we love him. And we're going to ask the question in a moment, how do I know if I love him? But we don't fear God if we love him. But those who reject his love, and we'll look at what that looks like in a moment, those who say, I don't want anything to do with God, will need to fear the day of judgment and his justice. So if we are in the love of God, there is no more fear. For those who reject the love of Jesus, there is a lot to be fearful of. So what is loving God? What does it that means that we might revere, not fear? I didn't intend for that to rhyme, uh, but there we go, revere, not fear. What does it mean to love God? It means to love his nature, first of all, his character, what he's about. It is to love the idea that our God is just. We had a wonderful video that we showed in our 8.30 call to prayer. Dan and I were thinking about justice, and I want to invite you to go back and have a look at that. And we heard an update on Dan's situation and prayed with him. So please do have a look at our 8.30. And there's a great uh, Bible project video that we showed that talks about the fact that God has created in every one of us that emotion to say, that's not right. And we look at what's going on in the Middle East, in Ukraine, and there's something within us that goes, that isn't right. That comes, that's not natural, that isn't part of evolution, that isn't what other animals have. It is something that comes from God's nature in his, and his desire to have equality for every human being, that every human being should be treated with dignity because they're made in his image. And this sense of justice is God, and we love him. And we love the fact that he's compassionate, that he weeps for a city, that he grieves over the brokenness. We love the description of God. Who is God, uh, Moses says uh, to this apparition of God. Who are you? The Lord your God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We love that description of God. We love the idea that he's gracious. We love, I hope, the idea that he forgives any who call on him and ask for his mercy. That's the God. We don't want to, we don't want to follow a God who, who closes his ears to repentance and says, well, you've got to lie in your own bed. You've made it. We love a God who says, you're crying out for mercy here. Let me give it to you. Let me set you free. Let me transform you. And if we love this about God, then we love God. And if we're in that love, 
And our response is, Lord, I'm not good enough. And we love the fact that he's died in our place because he's merciful. We love the idea that he offers forgiveness. And we invite him into our lives. And when we love God, we love his commands. I said earlier that the most important thing, the, the, the more I, I spend time in, in looking at Jesus, I am convinced he is saying in huge, big block capitals, underlined, highlighted, love your neighbor. This is my command, he says. And when we love God, we love that command. It's not about liking our neighbor, it's about choosing to do the best for them. It means we, we care, not necessarily that we like. And we love that, we want nations to care, even if they can't like each other. We want leaders who model forgiveness, not revenge. And we love that command to forgive. We may find it hard, and it is hard. It is hard, but we love the command that he calls us to forgive. And we love the command that he calls us to look after his creation and all the people within it. We love that. So you say, Donald, I don't know if I love God enough. You don't need to, it's not about enough. It doesn't matter, we're all weak. We're all imperfect in our love. It's just, is there a part of you that goes, God, I want to know you. I want you in my life. I'm not good enough, but Lord, come in. Because if that is us, we are in the love of God. And if we're in the love of God, there is no fear. So what about this guy who is recommended, who is honored because he feared the Lord? Well, he revered, he honored, he held in awe God more than most people do. So what does that look like? He considers God awesome. I was telling the kids this morning, uh, I'm allowed one uh, Cambridge United football uh, reference a, a month, and then after that, the elders speak to me and say, you're talking about football too much. So those of you who know that uh, I have a friend who, uh, I was brought up in Cambridge, I support Cambridge United, they're not a very good football team. They're in League One, which for those of you in old money is the third division. And uh, a friend of mine who is the chaplain, he's the pastor of the Baptist Church, which is a quarter of a mile from the church, and uh, we meet up regularly. Uh, he's been here, he's been in our church, and uh, I go and, to his church and I preach from time to time. I was preaching there when I was on holiday last week. We went to a game together. He, he is the chaplain. He goes and wanders around, and all the players and the manager and everybody knows him. He says, come with me, we'll go. and I go, no, I can't. He said to me, why don't you come? On a Thursday, he goes to the training and he, and he stands around, he watches them train and he chats to the players and they all know him. And he said, why don't you come down on a Thursday? Because I was on holiday. Come down on a Thursday, we can go to the training ground, you can meet all the players. I'll introduce you. I can't do that. I cannot do that because I know what happens. I don't know if you have this experience. There are certain situations where I just know all I'm going to do is, is, is gabble stupid things and say something awkward and embarrassing because I hold these professional but not that good footballers in such awe 
I would be tongue-tied. I would feel awkward. I just can't do it. I had this, the head teachers in schools do the same thing to me. I go into schools and I take lessons. I'm even a governor, and the head teachers scare me. Uh, just something about it. And I don't, you've probably all got people, types of people. One of the really worst things about my job is when I'm sometimes meeting, it tends now to be younger people, and I can tell they're scared of me. And, and, and they're nervous, and they're not quite being themselves. I hate that. What does it mean to fear God? We do want to please him. We do want to obey him. We love him. He is greater than us. He's bigger than us. We want to serve him. But unlike me and the Cambridge United footballers, we're able to speak to him freely, but we consider that a privilege and a wonder and an awe. We want to please God, but we don't want to hurt or disobey him. James Ryle says this, to fear the Lord is to have profound reverence for him. It means to be so overwhelmed with God's beauty, holy, holiness and greatness that we find ourselves speechless in adoration, passionate in removing from our lives anything that would disqualify us from walking in fellowship with him. So I want to just highlight for you what it looks like to revere God, to honor him, to respect him, to consider him great. What is reverence? It isn't that we fear God withholding his mercy. There's no condemnation. But we do fear not seeking his mercy. We should fear never coming to God and saying, I'm sorry. We should fear a lifestyle of arrogance and self-sufficiency. But those of us that walk in a habit, a daily habit, of humility and forgiveness, of confession. We don't fear God, because we know that he is dying to forgive us, literally. We don't fear God leaving us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never abandon us. He will never say, Donald, you've gone too far this time. Never. But I am conscious that I am fickle and could walk away. And so I keep myself alert to drifting and stopping fellowship and communion with him. We don't fear meeting God. We don't fear death. Now, we may fear, and rightly so, the process and the grief and the pain that death causes to the people we leave behind and the horror of that separation that they experience. And we may fear the pain and the indignity of illness, and that is absolutely right and legitimate. but we don't fear meeting God. A couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a Thanksgiving service for a dear member of our church, Richard, and I had the privilege 
of having a few uh, minutes with him shortly, uh, about a week or so before he died. And this, in part, what he said, he's not afraid. He said, I'm looking forward. I'm, I, I'm desperate to leave Joe. Feels bad about that. But we do not fear meeting God. We long for his return. It would be very convenient and great if Jesus returned tonight. That would sort out the Middle East and cease fires and Ukraine. Deal with it. And so we cry, again, a word that in the old, that, that we, some versions don't translate, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We don't fear his return. But we do fear meeting God, trusting in our own goodness and our own ability and thinking that we are worthy of God's forgiveness. We are unworthy. We trust in Jesus. We don't meet him without acknowledging our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. We don't fear God not loving us. We just don't fear him. Because we love him and we've discovered that he loves us and nothing, nothing will break that. But it's not our right because we revere him and we go, that you should love me. We don't take it for granted. We come week by week and we worship because it is amazing. And you know what? We do fear hurting him. We may, God willing, have a friendship or a love for a family member where we feel confident that they will always love us. I hope we have that experience. I know that that's not common to all of us, that level of security in sickness and in health. But when we have that kind of relationship with a person that we know they love us, a brother, a sister, a parent, a child, a friend, a partner. We fear hurting them because we love them. That's what reverence is. We do not want to hurt God because he's greater than us. He's awesome. He is majestic. He has all power. And we don't fear being in his presence. We hold it in awe and we fear walking away. When I was growing up as a Christian, we had a phrase, backsliding. It means to just gently slip backwards away from God. And it, you don't really decide to do it. It just happens. We just stop doing, meeting with God, meeting with God's people, doing things. You're not in that process because you're here but you can look around and see the people who aren't here. And some of you won't be here next year because you slipped away. Something got in the way, a job, an argument with somebody, a disappointment, a frustration with me. Fear that and hold on to God. We don't fear his commands, but we do feel fear rebelling against him. So Sheila is going to lead us in responding together. Three questions for us to consider. What is it about God that we hold in awe? 
the beauty of creation, the wonder of his love, the incredible works he's done in our lives. What are those stories? If I was to come down with a microphone and some sweets and say, what awesome thing do you see in God? What would your answer be? The second question is, where are their attitudes of taking God for granted within us? Where is it that we don't revere him? Because Nehemiah chooses this guy because he reveres God more than most, which means that most of us don't do it enough. We take it for granted. We assume he'll do what we want and bless our plans. We assume we can be half-hearted and it's okay. And where is God encouraging us to rely on his love? Let's stand together as Sheila uh, comes to rejoin me. Lord, we come to you, and first off, we want to say you are awesome, God. You are greater than our imagination can comprehend. You are wiser than we could ever know. You are more patient, more generous, more gracious, more compassionate than our hearts can ever contain. And we love you. We love your values, we love your commands, we love your law, we love you. And we love the fact that you say, come to me. And we can. And we're welcomed, and we're forgiven, and we're accepted, and you will never turn us away and you'll never leave or forsake us. Help us to revere and honor you. Not to take this for granted. Not to presume that we can live our lives nilly-willy in our own way and you'll just tag along behind and be our guru. Help us to revere you, to honor you, to desire to serve you, to put you first in our lives. Hebrews says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe.